talking about here is our home group ministry. We have three semesters during the year, and our fall semester will be starting at the end of this month. Home group ministry is simply gathering in people's homes to study and to have fellowship, to pray together. And there's a brochure in front of you. You'll see some colorful brochures there that talk about the different options that you can choose. And you'll notice that one of them is called SHAPE. And that's something that we've had 50, maybe 60 of our adults go through so far. But it's just to determine how God has uniquely gifted you or shaped you so that gift can then be used in ministry. That was only six weeks long. The others are 13 weeks long. So if you like short courses, then go for the SHAPE program. The next Sunday, we're going to have a picnic and a ball game. So please make plans to stay, not stay after the service. We'll be moving over to W.D. Pearson Field in Fairview. That's on the corner of Frederick and Willett. And we're going to have a barbecue there. Church will supply hot dogs. And then everybody else can just kind of bring something to share with everybody else. Bring a ball, bat, glove, chest protector, face mask, if you might need it as well, whatever is necessary. 20 years ago, a woman by the name of Betty Eady wrote a book called Embraced by the Light. And in that book, she claimed to have actually died, gone to heaven, and then returned again. And in that book, she had vivid pictures of what her experience was like. And she went on a journey that she had an encounter with Jesus. And then she said she also received some teaching. Now, parts of what she said in that book tie in with the biblical account of God in heaven. But then other parts don't uh, apply whatsoever to the Bible. She said that everyone will go to heaven in spite of what the Bible says. She said that in, that in heaven she discovered that everyone is divine. The word divine is used to mean God. But my grandmother, Madison, used to make divinity fudge. And it, it, it was divine. It was just like something God had made. I had to try to eat it all before my brother and cousins found it. So she, Betty Eady said that everyone is divine. And then she also said that Adam and Eve didn't sin in the Garden of Eden. And while she was in heaven, she received some teaching that said the Holocaust came as a result of some spiritually conscious choices that the Jewish people made. So it was designed to actually teach the Jewish people a lesson on sacrifice. Now Betty Eady is a Mormon. The Mormon, Mormons believe many of the things that she wrote in this book, and they are a direct contrast to God's word. So what psychiatrist believes that she actually had hallucinations, that it must have been what happened with her. Hugh Downs, who uh, was the host of 2020 back in 1994, actually had her on his show. And he said he couldn't get over the fact that this first-time author could sell a million books and have that much popularity. People flocking to her lectures, asking questions about the afterlife. So he brought her in, and at the end of the show, this is what he said. There is no doubt that people had a spiritual thirst. Now, he's right on with that. The people want to know about God. They want to know about eternity. And that's why we're in this series of teaching on God, and we're going to be answering some questions about Him. But we're not going to look at what books 
have to say about God and about heaven, we're going to look at the book that was written by the creator of the universe himself. Now, R.C. Sproul said, I always knew who Jesus was, but God the Father was shrouded in mystery. He was a hidden enigma in my mind and a stranger to my soul. Now, we actually don't talk enough about God the Father, but according to Jesus, when we see him, when we study about him, then we are actually learning about the nature of God. So it's impossible for us to have great living if we have the wrong image of the Almighty God. Now how can we have unity with other believers if we don't have the proper formation concerning the nature of who God is? So what do you think God is like? And what's your image of Him? How would you actually describe Him? If He's really the most important thing in your life, then you should be able to describe Him as you would your best friend. I had a wedding ceremony yesterday, and the maid of honor was up there at the microphone at the reception talking about her best friend, the bride. It was very emotional. She talked about why they were best friends. We should be able to do the same thing about God. A.W. Tozer has written some things that we're going to look at a little later. But I want to tell you about a five-year-old boy who was taking a walk with his father. And he said, Dad, where does lightning come from? And the father said, Son, it's been an awfully long time since I was in science class, so I can't remember the answer. Then the little boy said, Well, why is there such a thing as wind? I don't really know, son. I've always been perplexed by that one. And then, Dad, what makes the grass green? Well, that's a great question, son, and I don't have the answer for you. And then the little guy said, Dad, I hope you don't mind me asking you all these questions. He said, of course not, son. How else are you going to learn anything? <laughs> okay, he wasn't much help. So I'm hoping to be a little more help here this morning. But I don't have all the answers concerning God because I'm working from a limited intellect. My family sometimes says it's a little less limited than I, excuse me, a little more limited than I think. But I'm trying to use that to describe this unlimited, almighty God. But I know where we can go to for the answers. And in this series, we're going to try and answer some of those questions that you might have about God. Do we have the written word of God? We have God revealed through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have the Holy Spirit. That's God revealed in that way as well. And that's how we learn about what God's really like. The surprising truth about God. So today we're going to start off with God's holiness. And this aspect of the nature of God is the only one that is actually read three times when it's listed in reference to God. It's in Isaiah 6, it's in Revelation 14. But it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not just one holy, but that's not enough to describe God. But we hear the word holy in so many different ways today that we need to clarify that holiness in the Bible means somebody who is separate from evil. It means purity. It means completeness. So when we say a Christian is whole or a Christian is holy, that means they are complete in Christ. And it also means to be called out. So it's to be different from the world, called out from the world. 
And we see holiness demonstrated throughout the Bible in the nature of God. That back in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect until Adam and Eve committed that sin. And then all of a sudden, they're behind a tree. They're trying to make clothes for themselves. They're hiding behind a tree. They're hiding from God because their sin made them aware of their sinfulness. That their imperfection around this holy God. Moses was the one who had the encounter with God. God was speaking to him through this bush that was burning, but not being consumed. And all he could do was just haul off his sandals, because he said, where I'm standing is holy ground. This is God's ground. He couldn't even keep his footwear on. What's the name of the holiest person that you know? And just think of that person for a moment. And I want you to know that that person's holiness pales in comparison to the holiness of God. But the scriptures tell us that the holiest people on this earth pale in comparison to the holiness of God. So that's the nature of God. The Lord's Prayer begins in Matthew 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to respect it means to have a reverential awe for something. So why was Jesus so specific when he taught his disciples to pray? The significance is an understanding that part of our role as believers is to teach others about the holiness of God. And it's to teach people to respect or have that proper reverence for God. Just like we want our children to have that proper respect and reverence for us. And in the Ten Commandments, one of the instructions there was to not take the Lord's name in vain. Yet, we hear it all over the place. In the hockey dressing room, was probably the worst I've encountered. But then I heard some groups of women that came close as well. But you even hear Christians that will say, oh my God, and think nothing of it. And God has said, I don't want you cursing my name. I don't want you dishonoring my name. I want you to honor my name. Because names are important. And if you don't think that, try calling someone the wrong name. And then see the look on their faces. Like I, stood, I was going to say right about here, for my daughter Shannon's wedding. But it might not have been here. It was a different. It was before all our renovations. But her husband is James Stevenson, one of our associate pastors. My only sibling is my brother James. So I had James Nicholson in my head the whole time. We got to the vows. And James repeat after me. I, James Nicholson, take you, Janet Nicholson. And to see the look on his face, and then the laughter that came. We had a couple of other mess-ups in that ceremony that were good for humor. But it worked out well. But we see that. When we call someone by the wrong name, they don't like it. Or if you actually come up with some nickname that is hurting. And you just see the face fall on that person because it deflates their self-image. Back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for God was so holy that the people wouldn't even speak that word for fear that they might have a slip of the tongue and mispronounce it. And it would dishonor the name of God. The scribes of the Old Testament, like before they would write words from one scroll to another, they would go through this elaborate cleansing procedure so that their bodies would be totally cleansed and pure before they wrote the Word of God. So speaking the Word of God, writing the Word of God, 
God, who was that important, then God's name is still important today. And even though we worship Him and celebrate our salvation with joy, there's still that underlying foundation of reverence and respect for His holiness. Back in the Old Testament, before God became flesh, came to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the high priest would once a year, on the Day of Atonement, go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. This was a 15 by 15 foot room right in the center of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, which you've heard about, would have been there. And the presence of God was in that room. So this priest wouldn't sleep the night before his annual trip. And the people made certain that he didn't fall asleep either. Because they were afraid that he might have some type of dream where he had an impure thought. And then go directly from there into the Holy of Holies. Into the presence of God's holiness with this sinful thought on his mind. And then they would tie a rope to his leg. So if he walked in there and for some reason had a heart attack or some other physical calamity, they couldn't go in to the holiness where the holiness of God was. So they would drag that body out by the rope. Remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? And in there they talked about the Ark of the Covenant. They talked about the Holy of Holies. And they depicted all kinds of supernatural things happening when people touched that Ark. Now I don't know exactly what would happen if we were ever able to find the Ark of the Covenant today. But when I watch that movie, I think, okay, this is Hollywood. This is something that gives no credibility to God whatsoever. Yet still, they are respecting the holiness of God to create these supernatural things when the Ark of the Covenant was touched. So if they are that amazed about the holiness of God, just think of how much more we, as believers in God, as believers in Christ, should be amazed about His holiness. So let's look at Jesus' example to find out more about the nature of God. And throughout His life and His ministry, it was nothing but a life of holiness. In John 14, verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. And Jesus replied, Philip, I have been with you for a long time. Don't you know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How can you ask me to show you the Father? Don't you believe that I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me? Why, or what I say isn't said on my own. The Father who lives in me does these things. So when we look to Jesus, we see God. And Simon Peter experienced the holiness of God through the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus appeared to him in the power and holiness through a miraculous catch of fish. Like Peter's reaction in Luke 5 was, like, Lord, like, don't come near me. Like, I'm a sinner. When he saw what Jesus was able to do, he just felt he couldn't even be in Jesus' presence. The holiness overwhelmed him. And then in John 18, verse 3 to 6, we see a description of when Jesus was arrested. And it's an amazing picture of his power and holiness. Judas had promised to betray Jesus, 
So he went to the garden with some Roman soldiers and temple police who had been sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They carried torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus already knew everything that was going to happen. But he asked, Who are you looking for? And they answered, We are looking for Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus told them, I am Jesus. And at once they all backed away and fell to the ground. So the soldiers had weapons. The disciples didn't. There were a lot of people in that group coming to arrest him. There were 12 disciples. Yet when they realized who Jesus was and stood in his presence, all they could do was back away and bow down. The salesman was driving by a firm, and a man was doing the finishing touches on whitewashing his shed. And the shed looked so sparkling white in contrast to the mud all around that firm yard. But then, a couple days later, the same salesman was coming back by that same firm, and there had been about five centimeters of snow. Now, all of a sudden, that little shed looked so gray in comparison to the purity and the pure white snow that had fallen on the ground. And we see that difference. So we may compare ourselves to some other person, but then we compare ourselves to God. It's like comparing ourselves to the purity of that snow. When we think of the word holiness, we like to play that old comparison game. But we're very careful about who we compare ourselves to. We think, okay, there's Joe. Like, he sins a lot more than I do. I, I, I'm much more holier than he is. And then Susie over there, same thing. I know what's going on in her life. We always compare down to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel holier. We don't compare ourselves up to the righteousness of God. But when we come into the presence of God, we are quickly humbled as we're convicted of our sin. So we've learned to live with unholiness. It's the expected thing. We aren't disappointed when we find that our teachers are not telling the truth. Or when we don't see faithfulness in people that we are so trusting in. We don't see faithfulness in our politicians or, or even in our preachers. Or we don't see full honesty in the merchants that we deal with. Or we don't see full honesty in our friends. It doesn't surprise us anymore. But God sets the standard as He demonstrated complete holiness. And each generation of parents, we seem to be frightened to bring our kids up in this generation. We see all the evil out there. And we don't want our kids tainted by it. But the scriptures tell us, if we are Christians, then there's this amazing light that's shining through us. And that it will dispel the darkness in our world. I grew up in the country, on a farm, and whenever we drove the car at night, it, your headlights just illuminated your path. It was amazing. And then moving to Halifax, and driving around at night with your low beams on, so much light distortion around you, pollution, I guess is the right word. But sometimes I don't think my headlights are doing anything. I might even turn them off or to see if there's any difference. Like we can make a difference in this world. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, 
then you will be the pure and innocent children of God. You live among people who are crooked and evil, but you must not do anything that they can say is wrong. Try to shine as lights among the people of this world. So to live a holy life in our world today is like basically saying, in your face to the world, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to follow Christ. The purpose of the church is to make a difference. But if we live like everyone else in the world, if it's impossible for people to see something special or something different in us, then we're not making any impact whatsoever. We need to follow the example of Jesus and His holiness. So we've seen God's nature. We've seen the example of Jesus. Then finally, we're going to look at what our response is going to be. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are God's chosen and special people. You are a group of royal priests and a holy nation. God has brought you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Now you must tell all the wonderful things that he has done. John Wesley once said that he looked for people who loved nothing but God and hated nothing but sin. And that's a good line for speaking, but it's a tough principle to put in practice. Yet we accept God's challenge to live a holy life. But what does our culture say to us? They basically say, you know, get a life. You go ahead and strive for holiness, but I'm striving for happiness. I'm looking out for goal number one here. I'm going to do whatever feels good. And most people aren't willing to pay the price when it comes to holiness. And it's something that you can't just kind of back into. It's not something that's going to happen accidentally. It's a conscious choice. And it's a difficult one at that. Back when I was doing youth ministry in the 90s, there was a program that was being promoted. It was called True Love Waits. And what it was, it was asking teens to make a commitment to be sexually pure until they were married. And they would sign a covenant. And it was a decision with their parents. It was a covenant with God. It was a covenant with their church, with themselves and with their future spouse. And it was a choice that to be holy. But it wouldn't be applauded. It would be a decision that would be mocked by their peers. Satan would have a heyday with that type of thing. And in many cases they were saying, it's more important for me to be pure than it is to be popular. Now there was a youth pastor that said he was approached by a father of two high school aged girls. And he said, I don't want you promoting that program with our kids. If they follow this program, they're going to be made fun of in school and by their friends. And I'm sure that guy was kind of, you know, knock yourself on the head because you can't believe what someone has just said. But he then responded by saying, yeah, they probably will be ridiculed. Nobody has ever said that holiness doesn't require a commitment. But so many people want to water that truth down and, and be like Betty Eadie. God is there within you. You are your own God. Like you set your own rules. You make your own agenda. And if you choose to change those rules, that, that's no problem. Just go ahead and change them and live any way you want. That's putting me in control and the Lord God outside of the perimeter of my life. 
And there's a song we used to sing in church when I was a kid. As God said it, and I believe it. And that settles it for me. But we should actually rephrase that a little bit. God said it, and that settles it for me. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. If God said it, that's enough. We don't have to then decide whether we believe it and whether we want to go along with it. But our society works it the other way around. Our society says that our society, our morality, shapes our theology when it should be our theology shaping our morality. Genesis 1:26, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Now you can say, Now my God would never allow unbelieving people to go to hell. Well maybe that isn't your God. But is your God the same God that's revealed to us in the scriptures through the person of Jesus Christ? Is he holy? Is he in charge? Is he powerful? Because that's exactly what he is. Regardless of what any infallible human being says, and regardless if any of those individuals refuse to acknowledge him, he is still holy and powerful. I love what Isaiah wrote, and I love this encounter that he had with God. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I had a vision of the Lord. He was on his throne high above, and his robe filled the temple. Flaming creatures with six wings, each were flying over him. They covered their faces with two of their wings, and their bodies with two more. They used the other two wings for flying. As they shouted, Holy, 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 Lord all-powerful, the earth is filled with your glory. As they shouted, the doorposts of the temple shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I cried out, I'm doomed. Everything I say is sinful. And so are the words of everyone around me. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord all-powerful. Isaiah was a good man. Isaiah was the prophet of God. And what made him a good man was his humility. And when he found himself in the presence of God, I can't even speak a clean word. There's nothing that I can do in God's presence to make myself clean. I am so imperfect. He is so perfect. There are four brief lessons that we can learn from Isaiah chapter 6. First of all, holiness creates an awareness of sin. And Betty Eady said, the first person that she saw when she got to heaven was Jesus, and she ran up to him and embraced him. Now I want you to know that when you go to heaven, that might be the second thing you do, but the first thing that you will do when you enter into heaven is, just like those men did when they came to arrest Jesus, it will be just to back off a little bit and bow down before him. Because for the first time in your life, you will be in the presence of ultimate holiness and purity and perfection. Then, after you just get yourself together, you might be able to get up and have that hug. But the first response is going to be, amazement at his holiness. In Philippians 2.10, Paul wrote, So at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow down, those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, Jesus Christ is Lord. So if it's that amazing to just mention his name, just imagine what it's going to be like to stand in his presence in heaven. 
Napoleonist is also an example to follow. And what we tend to do today is choose the wrong role models. They ask your kids who their heroes are, and you kind of shudder sometimes at the names that they give to you. But when people pick their heroes, Holiness usually isn't a requirement. Now, there were 22 Elvis impersonators back when Elvis was still alive. And in 1994, that number had grown to 1,239. And the prediction, a little math is, by the year 2036, one in every five people will be an Elvis impersonator. So look down your row, with some rows there are five, some you might have to add. You know, one, of, one of you in the second row will be an Elvis impersonator in 24 years. But we do pick the wrong people. But Paul Hurley said, God made us all originals. And we spend our lives, our whole lives, trying to be copies. God has called every Christian to live a holy life. And he's given us the role model in his son, Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 1, always live as God's holy people. Because God is the one who chose you. And he is holy. That's why the scriptures say, I am the holy God. And you must be holy too. So holiness, remember what it means. It means to be set apart. And you might say, well, I, I can't be holy. But Jesus can be holy through you. In and of ourselves, we can never meet that goal. But the holiness of Christ saves us. So holiness is a gift that's given. And because of that gift, we can boldly stand before God. And even though we are full of imperfections, even though we're full of sin, we can proudly and boldly stand before the Holy God. And God doesn't just erase our sin when we turn our life over to Him. He does something better. He offers to put His righteousness into our lives. And that's a strange biblical concept for us to turn our lives over to Him. It's not just a clean slate as far as sin goes in our lives, but He places Himself inside of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And then the blood of Jesus the Son purifies us from that sin. And we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm not holy. I'm as sinful as they come. I, I know exactly why Peter said, oh, get away from me. But I I'm a sinful man. But I can't be in your presence. But Jesus' blood shed on the cross covers over the sins that I repent of. And I am a new creation. That's the gift that God has given to us. And then lastly, from verses 6 to 8 of Isaiah 6, we see that holiness allows us to be used for service. One of the flaming creatures flew over to me with a burning coal that it had taken from the altar with a pair of metal tongs. It touched my lips with the hot coal and said, This has touched your lips. Your sins are forgiven, and you are no longer guilty. After this, the Lord said, Is there anyone I can send? Will someone go for us? I'll go, I answered. Send me. And when you allow the holiness of God to enter your life, all of a sudden you're convicted and you realize that God can use you, that the Spirit can transform you, that you can do amazing things for God. You may have heard this prayer that Peter Marshall prayed. He said, We thank you that we can come to you, God, just as we are. But remind us 
that we dare not leave you just as we came. And here's one verse I want to leave you with, Hebrews 12, 14. Try to live at peace with everyone. And live a clean life. If you don't, you will never see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord someday? Then you need to live a life of holiness. And you can't get your theology through someone who's had a near-life experience. You can only get your theology through someone who has died, come back from the dead, and then gone on to heaven ahead of you. He's the one who conquered death. He's the one that was able to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing our commitment song together. If you've never committed yourself to our holy God through the person of Jesus Christ, I invite you to make that decision. You can come to the front and share that with us. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to any of our leadership. Please make that decision.